0: Hello, and welcome in to this edition of the
1: Talk Nats podcast. I'm so glad you decided to join me today. As always, this podcast is free and available on all the major platforms. My name is Dan Holmy. You can find me on Twitter, it's at DanCaps218. You can find the show on Twitter. It's at TalkNats. In today's episode of the TalkNats podcast, we have former Nationals pitcher Brandon Kinsler on the show. We talk about his time on the team, why he was traded to the Cubs, and ultimately why Mike Rizzo called him a rat. Not by name, but why was he ultimately traded from the Nationals and what he said ultimately ruined his career. Later, we will talk about how Brandon had to overcome adversity. He was best known for throwing his sinking fastball. Uh, and that was a pitch he had to develop after a shoulder surgery. Before that, he was known for his four seam fastball. He is known as the best 40th round pick in MLB history. Today's episode is brought to you by SeatGeek. Take $20 off your first ticket purchase when you use promo code TOCNATs, Just follow the link in the show description. Yes, that's good for nationals, tickets, commanders, capitals, wizards, any of that. Just follow the link in the show description. Today's episode is also brought to you by Manscaped. Take 20% off plus free shipping when you use promo code MINUTECAST at manscaped.com and today's episode is also brought to you by mayweather boxing and fitness located at 230 water street just tell them you want the nats discount today in today's episode we have brandon Kinsler, former national welcome to the show oh, thank you very much thanks for having me so just kind of taking a look back on history here In a matter of 11 days in July, there was a scathing Chelsea Jane article that hit, and your words were used anonymously. And then days later, Trey Turner was accused of using racist and homophobic slurs in social media when he was younger. And all of this was going on when Bryce Harper was being rumored to being traded. And then the final straw was the Jeff Passan article that said the Nats had a clubhouse issue citing three unnamed sources, you were immediately traded and called a rat, not by name, by GM Mike Rizzo. So to clear things up, five years later, welcome to the podcast. Tell us your story.
2: Um, I remember Chelsea earlier. I'm saying it might have been June or July. She came up to me and she's like, "Can I just talk to you?" And I was like, "She's like, she's like, I was like, on the record, off the record." She's like, "Off the record." I'm like, oh, "Okay." So we just had a normal conversation, probably talking about bullpen stuff because. The bullpen was usage was a nightmare that year and then uh like a week or two is going by and i see her and she's going around interviewing other relievers i'm like i think she's writing an article and she didn't even like give me a chance to like even put my name on it or anything and i just thought we just had a normal conversation with just people so the next thing you know that article comes out I'm like, and I'm the only one. Like, I'm the most outspoken person in the clubhouse, just for fun. And now I'm the only one that's not going to put my name on. That made absolutely no sense. So uh, that day, I even went in the Davy and told him, like, man to man, like, look, I had no, I didn't really keep my name off the article. That I mean anything that was said in that book, then that article, wasn't bad. and was nothing that he didn't already know. So I just told him, hey, look, I was at the name that wasn't on there, and he, we were fine. And then days go by and all of a sudden the trade deadline and i'm just having a good time with the trade deadline because i always you know i always call it hug watch you always start hugging, they got traded next thing you know they come and grab me and i'm like yeah right because i had a two-year deal i don't think any no chance i get trade on the first year and then another like no you i'm like that's weird so they they told me they're traded and i was like is this a joke and they're like no and i'm like okay so then i'm sitting at my locker packing up and then they had a meeting that that's where I guess Rizzo went nuts and said he always finds his sources or whatever so Doolittle comes back he's like man Rizzo thinks you were part of that Pisana article I'm like I don't even know that guy I never talked to that guy in my life so I I went and grabbed Rizzo myself and I I explained I was like look I had nothing to do with uh, that Yahoo article I never talked to that guy in my life I swear on my kids I had nothing to do with that stuff He's like, why don't I just hate all this anonymous stuff? I was like, me too, but I had nothing to do with that article. And I was like, I was part of that. I was like, the Chelsea James article, yeah, my name was left out, but I already squared that up with Davey. And then he just used that and kind of ran with him, just blame it on the Chelsea James article. But he never really found his people or talked about his people about the Pasaan article, which is really what stirred everything up. And it was just too late. you know. I see him out the door and he's already talking crap about me.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was the interesting thing. You didn't ask Chelsea Janes for that July 19th, 2018 article to be off the record, but she offered that. And it says here that you didn't think much of it till afterwards. Everybody else was on the record, and you were the only one off the record. So it kind of made you look like a rat after the fact. Um, So do you think that this was Chelsea trying to manipulate the story?
2: Maybe. I'm sure it got more clicks or... You know, there's an anonymous source or whatever. Like she said names, people were named and unnamed. But uh, the Besson article is really what triggered everything. I did not even think about the Chelsea article at the time. I, I thought I squared that up with Davey and we were fine. I told him how there was a misunderstanding. But the Besson articles were I was really pissed off for getting blamed because I absolutely had zero to do with whatever that was.
1: It was an interesting thing. I watched uh, some footage from that time, and uh, he said that it was from an you know an anonymous source. And you know, anonymous source, there's a lot of leeway there. So you know, you can kind of say, well, I heard from an anonymous source, and you don't ever really have to uh, divulge that. So there was an interesting thing that I saw here, and this was painted. It says, "You're either in, or you're in the way." Quote unquote, Mike Rizzo. Kind of a telling thing. Um, what, what what's your take on all of that? well this dress towards me it makes no
2: sense because i absolutely loved playing for the nationals i loved every guy in that clubhouse i just loved it there's a reason why i signed up pick to go back to dc i could have went to texas for two years if i wanted to and be a closer but instead i chose to go back to dc to be the seventh inning guy like i loved being there so the fact that they thought i would be in the way makes absolutely no sense i just think his team was underperforming. His rookie manager was struggling to manage a bullpen or manage anyone at the time, and he was looking for a blame guy. So to blame the seventh inning guy is – which makes no sense. Like, why would I get the blame? I, I don't have that much of an impact on the team. I mean, just the whole thing was freaking nuts. It, to, it was crazy.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it was pretty crazy at the time. You saw that it was a change from Dusty Baker to Davey Martinez. And there was a lot of questions surrounding uh, why Dusty Baker didn't come back and went to Davey Martinez. And they ultimately didn't get the results that they were looking for at the time, hadn't won a World Series. That didn't come until 2019. Do you think that this was Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez just kind of frustrated by the situation? And then this article came out and they're like, this is enough. We need to kind of nip this in the bud and, and take care of this situation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then they, everyone wanted him to trade Bryce and do all that. And then all of a sudden the article comes out and and he's just like, no, we're going for it. You know, he, he does have an ego. and." He was just like, oh, we were going for it and I'm going to blame someone. And this is why this is why we're not we're underperforming. It's a seventh inning guy who said something. So it was just a whole big mess. And the problem is it probably affected my fragrancy for the next two years. In '19, I had a career year. Well, not only did it cost me a World Series ring, which eats me to this day, but I had a career year in Chicago better than any better than my all-star year. And I took a pay cut. The following year, gotten hardly any phone calls, and then I still led the league in saves in 2020. And then I had to take a minor league deal. So I'm not saying I'm not saying that's the reason why, but it could have a big reason why I'm probably out of the game or I lost a lot of money, which sucks.
1: And uh, just taking a look at Rizzo's official statement, they said because they wanted to make Wander Swearo the closer. Um, and that was just kind of what was said and everyone yes. kind of just accepted it as face value at the time, you know, to be honest with you, I didn't think a whole lot. It seemed a little bit off to me. And then I was talking with the guys from talknats.com and they said, you should really kind of dig into this a little bit. And now the more that I've dug into it, I don't want to go down a conspiratorial rabbit hole, but it does seem like a bit of a conspiracy theory to me. Um, and it's just a uh, really unfortunate, um, kind of summarize the clubhouse at that time uh it was said that you called it a mess how was it a mess i know that bryce harper who let's face it is a great a great player right but a a bit of a prima donna i guess suffices to say and then there were all these kind of crazy allegations and you talked about the bullpen did you say it was a mess if so what did you mean exactly or was that not true it I is a 100% did not
2: say that to anybody. And I had never met pissan in my life until I think it was like a year or two later. And then I finally was like, dude, your article, like totally ruined my life. He's like, Oh, I'm sorry. The funny thing is like Theo Epstein, at least he was cool enough to call the, the writer to ask him if that, if I was his source and he told him absolutely not, that's not him. So at least that guy, Theo was cool enough and classy enough to make a call. But it was too late. Like you already, especially with social media, is everything spread like wildfire. And mentally that just screwed me up. It sucks is the Cubs are really good at that time and I could have helped them a lot, but mentally I was in such a bad place. I just pitched freaking terrible. Probably cost us the division.
1: So, I mean, if you were to summarize the clubhouse back then, not a mess, how would, in your words, how would you summarize it?
2: Um, I would just say, I mean, it was frustrating. We had guys that were hurt. Uh, I think Rendon got hurt quite a little bit. Zimmerman got hurt. Daniel Murphy was trying to come back from his knee. I mean, it was just a very frustrating where we, no one was mad at each other, blaming each other. We were just a frustrating clubhouse. That's it. I mean, we're, for a team that probably should have won the World Series the year before, and then now, I mean, basically you add Juan Soto to that clubhouse, to that roster, which is a great pickup, and we're underperforming. It's just – you're just a frustrating clubhouse. It's nothing a mess. I wouldn't say that. If anyone that – whoever was saying that to the rider was probably someone that was very – uh, upset with their role or something. I don't know. I, I till to this day I don't know who said it, which which sucks, and no one even cared.
1: It just ruined my life, and everyone moved on. All right, so coming up here after the break, we will continue talking with Brandon Kinsler. We talk about how he had to develop and use a sinking fastball. He was most known for his four-seam fastball, but a shoulder surgery made him have to work in another pitch. A little bit later, we will talk about at an early age when he was a BMX bike rider, how that taught him to be ready for the lights, how to perform under pressure. We'll continue to talk to Brandon coming up. But, uh, I mean, just taking a look at you historically, you are a guy that has overcome adversity. Quite a bit of accolades put your way. You are considered by baseball journalists to be the most successful 40th round draft pick in Major League yeah. Baseball history. Uh, so I know that I kind of started off the show with, you know, just to kind of dramatic comments there. But given credit where credit's due. That's quite an accolade. And those were written by some premier Major League Baseball writers. What does it mean for you to hear those co- compliments?
2: It means that, you know, obviously I was an underdog and 40th, I don't even know the 40th round uh, exists anymore, but uh, it just means all the hard work, that perseverance that paid off and so many people try to stop you along the way to, you know, so many front office guys tell you, no, like there's just so much bull crap that happens in baseball in the major league level that uh, you have to overcome. You have to just keep pushing through the door. And I was able to do that even after 18, uh, 19, I come back, I bounce back and everyone thought I was done and I have the best year I ever had. So it just means I just keep getting up and uh, especially as a 40th rounder and you're not going to get much of a chance. I think I got released my second spring training because I was a 5'10 right-hander through 90 with a bad shoulder, so they released me. So. Just keep getting after it and hard work. And I think everyone always told me hard work will pay off. So it would be the best 40th round draft pick ever. And there'll never be another 40th round pick probably. It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it is That's quite a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it says here you are best known for your sinking fastball a uh, fastball excuse me a pitch that began throwing after shoulder surgery limited the speed of your four seam fastball Cubs teammate Pedro Strop referenced the pitch as one of the best that I've ever seen uh, so you know it's you know it's good to eat humble pie but that's quite a compliment as well you had the game there yeah. and uh, kind of to tie it back here it seems like You know, the things that happened with the Nationals kind of derailed the pitcher that you ultimately are. So it is, I can understand your frustration with the situation, but to tell the full story, the full story, the negative, which I started off, but the full story is people are calling you one of the best in baseball. That's got to feel pretty good at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, I did. Uh, at the time, but the thing is, great thing about baseball, they forget about it real fast. So the second he, <laughs> you go to the offseason, they want to find a way to find a way you're not good. There's a reason why this guy's not going to be good. Even though he's done it for all these years, there's, he's not going to be good. But yeah, for Pedro to say that, who was a great reliever, and he had a really good seeker at the time, too, um, I just always worked at my craft, and that was one people always wanted me to – Go with the wave of going back to the four seam, throwing at the top of the zone. Scherzer wanted me to throw more sliders to get more strikeouts, and I tried that in 18, and it messed my elbow up a little bit and messed up my sinker. So yeah, I was just like, you know what? Uh, I was an all-star for a guy that threw 90% fastballs. I'm just gonna go back to that, that. So in 19, when I got back to being mentally healthy, I just was in a good place, and I think that was the best stuff I've ever had. So yeah, I learned it in um, independent ball. Coming back from shoulder surgery, and I was throwing. I hadn't thrown. wasn't throwing hard yet. My force team was maybe 80, 90 and I was getting absolutely crushed. So I was like, I need to start throwing something that moves late. And then, uh so I learned. I started, and I taught, learned from Greg maddox one day. I was rehabbing my shoulder, and I asked him how he throws it to the glove side. He said he lands over to the to the left just a little bit because, you know, it starts as a ball and it comes back as a strike. So that's an unhittable pitch. <laughs> so as my velocity got stronger, and I already learned how to throw it to both sides of the plate, I just it was. What I'm not saying it was easy, but it made life really easy when you're throwing 95 with late movement to both sides of the plate.
1: How difficult is that? I'm not a pitcher. You know I played a little baseball, but nothing near what you would have done. How difficult is it to, uh, you know, start a whole new pitch? But I mean, it was very effective that you added to your arsenal there. How difficult is that? I mean, is it a lot of, you know, you said you talked to some players there. Do you, is that dealing with a pitching coach? And how much of it is – how big of an undertaking is that to make it an effective pitch?
2: Let's just, it just depends what you let's just say fastballs are my specialty and sliders really weren't so if I someone was trying to teach me a new slider I think that would be a little difficult because I'm I was a better pronator than going the other way so like Kyle Hendricks taught me a better change up in 19 so that's really easy because I'm already pronating so and I had a really good change up after that so but it, like Scherzer was trying to teach me sliders in 18 and it wasn't working just because my hand didn't go really well. So I would feel like it's really difficult to go that way. But um, if you can, but if you're trying to shape a pitch that's kind of already what you do special, it's a little easier, but like Scherzer would like work on pitches for like two years before he would bring into a game, which is nuts.
1: Max Scherzer. It's interesting. And I know that you're a pro ball player, but to even know someone like that is a guy that's just a fan of the sport. How cool is it to, to know, Max Scherzer? And what kind of guy is he? He seems like a guy that always comes into the situation. Ultimate, you know, he's very prepared for the situation. What kind of guy is Max Scherzer behind all of it? Being that you both are pitchers, what kind of guy is he?
2: Uh, He's a clown. He's a, he's a fun clown. Um, he loves to have fun. He loves to prank people, talk crowd. That's why we got along so well, because we just, no one talked crap to him everyone would just bow down to max and I, I just always want to give it to him and but I always held him to a high standard and he loved that we actually talked about that on my when I had him on my podcast a couple of weeks ago he said how he appreciated that you know I always made fun of how he worked out he goes and made him think about how he trained in the offseason to be better at what he does because I told him I was like man if you can actually focus on what you're doing you'd be so much better but um he always he loves the guys. He loves to go out to dinner with guys. He loves to take everyone out to dinner. He's, he's, I just always thought he was a clown. But uh, obviously when it was his day to pitch, it was Max's day, and he put those headphones on to stay out of the way.
1: Yeah, the one that thing that strikes me is he's a guy that's always prepared for different situations. One of the things that I saw is he found a way they incorporated the pitching clock uh, this year, and he found a way to, to get the batter back in the right away. So he seems like a guy that's always prepared – for the next thing, the next thing, even though they're going to add different things to baseball, which is kind of odd. I'm really surprised that in 2023, it finally came to fruition that they added the pitching clock to the game. What are your thoughts on the pitching clock? As a fan, as someone that watches the game, I I think it makes the game a lot quicker. I know that it probably makes it a bit more difficult for the pitcher. It makes it a little bit difficult difficult for the hitter. As a guy that plays the game or played the game, What are your thoughts on the pitch clock? Is that a good thing?
2: Um, As a fan, I love it because baseball is hard to watch. Especially you got a guy sitting in the bullpen, sometimes you're just like, oh, my gosh, this game is taking forever. But, um, like, last year I went and played AAA for a second. I saw maybe I wanted to play, and I got a pitch clock violation on, like, the first hitter because I had no idea what they were talking about. So that was when I was like, I don't like this because it just screwed up my routine. Because I'm all, such a routine. We train our brains forever to slow the game down. That's what makes you a good closer. Like you're good at slowing the game down. Now they're telling you, you got to speed it back up. You got to change everything. So at first I didn't like it. But in the games I didn't pitch and the pitch clock was going, the games were going by fast. i like, oh, this is great. And then one time we had a three hour game and I thought it was the worst thing ever. So I'm a huge fan of it. I just, I definitely think it took those guys a little bit to adjust. I think Max is just trying to sound like Max and he's not really, and he's not that smart.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I admire both of you guys, to be honest with you. Um, Just, uh, it's really cool. I know that you're, when you know, playing Major League Baseball. It's, yeah, I'm just friends with Max. But, you know, to just say, you know, hey, I know this guy. And it's such a big caliber guy. That's pretty impressive. All right. So, coming up after the break here, we will continue talking with Brandon Kinsler. We talk about how he was riding BMX bikes at two years old and how he won a national championship at six years old, how did the pressure of performing at such a young age make him ready for major league baseball? We'll talk about that straight ahead. But you're a guy that's been kind of competitive since the very beginning. I was reading up on you here a little bit more uh, talking about uh, you being involved in bmx bikes and i read it here and is this right or is this yeah. a typo at two years old is that is that correct
2: yeah i burned the training wheels off my my bike my dad's like we're just going to go to the track then because that was a bmx was big back then so we just started racing and started my dad learned me taught me how to train that's where i really learned about hard work is you, in bmx if you don't train you're just going to get your butt kicked they don't get participation trophies out so We started training a lot, and then uh, first thing I my son started racing, and then the first thing I did the day I retired, I went to the track with my son, and now for the last two years we've been traveling the country. So I'm in Louisville right now, getting ready to race this weekend. So it's been I can't get the adrenaline rush no more because I don't play, but I get a little bit when I uh, get in the gate against eight guys that want to absolutely smoke
1: you. And just looking here, and when you were six, you were the national championship. At four years old, he got interviewed by Colin Cowherd for the BMX Jump 29 years yeah. ago in 1988. Quite an accomplishment to have that kind of compete level at a young age is pretty uh, impressive, I got to say. I mean, yeah. most people that age, they're definitely not in that headspace to bring you know that intensity at that young. So I think that that probably prepared you pretty well for being a major league player, you know, down the road, you know, to play ultra competitive yeah. at the earliest age. Do you think that that was something that really helped in your development?
2: Yeah, hundred um, percent. Fear of failure. You had to learn real fast. And for BMX, I mean, this is now I've been around the sport for the last two or three years. These, some of these guys that haven't played in other sports, their mental weakness isn't like their mental game is crazy. Like some guys are really strong and some are really weak. So the fact that I got to go as a young kid and race and travel the whole country and train and, you know, racing in front of thousands of people at six years old, I think it just sets you up for as you grow up where the stage doesn't get the bigger stages don't affect you. And then now that I'm back, it's like these stages definitely don't affect me. It's like I played in front of millions of people (laughs) like this little little national here that I'm about to race is not a big deal But some of these guys are panic mode like this is like life or death for them.
1: I mean, and the thing I guess that I'm talking about, you know, is that, you know, getting prepared for that at a young age, you know, I'll watch a baseball game and it's a playoff game or there's a lot on the line in the pitcher. The camera's tight on the pitcher. Everyone is focused on the pitcher. Yeah. The, you could win the game, you could lose the game, you could be riding high or you could walk off the field kind of with your head down. I, I've seen it all. How difficult is that for you? Uh, uh, for a pitcher in major league baseball to be the focal point of attention in front of a stadium of thousands, not to mention all the people that are watching on television. I mean, you got to have a focus like none other there's people waving their arms and screaming and beating on things. How difficult is that? It's it's if you can hear it or you think about that, you're screwed
2: anyway. You're screwed. Like it's very difficult. You're not going to perform, but if you, when you're locked in, you don't hear you don't hear anything. You don't hear the crowd. You don't even think about what's happening. You're literally just thinking about this pitch in this moment, and those are the guys that succeed. But uh, it's the games that if they bring me into a blowout and I can hear the popcorn guy, I'm totally screwed. I know I'm going to give it up. It's not a good day. <laughs> but it takes you a while to so, I mean, get used to that, that stage. That's why it takes a long time.
1: So, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying, that you being competitive from the youngest of ages, I think that probably was one of the things that really helped in your development. But uh, just talking a little bit more about you and what you're up to nowadays is that you have your own podcast as well, the called the call to the pen podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, where we can find it and what kind of podcast is it anyway?
2: Oh, yeah. Call to the pen is me and Steve Ciszek uh me and steve play together in chicago and we're total opposite personalities um he's very reserved but he's like sneaky funny guy and then i'm out more outgoing love to talk trash and then but we it was like a comedy show or a sitcom every day in the bullpen between us or even in the clubhouse it's just, it's just we got along so well we talk crap to each other but we all obviously had the same drive to win so we thought if we put that onto a podcast and talk you know bullpench who's what good bullpens we like or even talk about the mental game of what helped us to be really good and successful for a long time and you know it might be entertaining to someone and it's going to help us a little do something during the week because you know retirement does get boring after a while uh, we haven't really decided exactly what kind of podcast we are we're almost Sometimes we're like really a mental. We're trying mental skills, and we're training, helping people learn how to be mentally strong in tough situations, or what helped us, or we'll bring in. And let's say we had Scherzer a couple weeks ago, and we'll ask him those questions, and he can learn from Scherzer. Or one day a week we had Jordan Farmar, who played for the Lakers, but won two championships with Kobe. So now we wanted to learn about what he learned with Kobe and all that. So there's all walks of life that we have on there. And some days, like last yesterday, we just talked about bullpen usage and what what bullpens we like and teams how they use them and you know, who's going to be able to succeed towards the end of the season. So it's, right now we're a little ball all over the place.
1: <laughs> and it's available wherever you find your podcasts, I assume.
2: Yeah. So YouTube, Apple, Spotify, Instagram, you can go anywhere.
1: Call to the pen. Yeah. So everyone that's watching or listening to this show, make sure and check that out. Uh, you know, all star studded, you know, you got Bron- Brandon Kinsler on there. You have Max Scherzer. I mean that uh, enough alone, if that's not enough to get you to listen, I don't know. What is? Listen, Brandon. I want to thank you for joining us on this edition of the Talk Nats podcast. A true honor uh, to talk to you. To talk to a major league player. Um, I, again, I, I'm beyond honored to have you on the show. Uh, where can we find you online other than the podcast? Where Where can we find your work?
2: Uh, I think uh, my Instagram is like Salty Kins, since my nickname was Salt all through baseball. So Instagram is Kins. I really don't. Have, my only Twitter is our Call it the pen one. So other than that, that's only where you can really find me
1: is on Instagram. All right. Once again, I want to thank you for joining us on this edition of the TalkNats podcast.
0: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you.